Hello and welcome back. This week for episode 10, I'm joined by Kinney Rossler, conservation ecologist from Aves Argentinas, who is going to be sharing his remarkable story of how at first he and then later passionate volunteers who are a bit mad, save the grebe from extinction in Patagonia. Starting out as a young bird watcher, Kinney took his passion into his studies, but cut them short as he realized the grebe were vanishing fast due to invasive mink, climate change, and other human causes. He gives an overview of the grebe, the climate situation in Patagonia, huge predictions, and much more. If you like this episode and would like to follow Kinney's work, please follow the links in the description. And if you would like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Good evening. Welcome back to Restoral Planet Podcast with me, your host, Chad Cole. I'm here joined by Kinney Rossler from Argentina, who works with Aves Argentinas. And yeah, Kinney, welcome. Hello, how are you, Shaq? Thank you for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be with you. Yeah, thank you. No, it's a privilege to have you. So just to start, Kenny, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you're doing today with, you know, your passions for conservation in, in Patagonia? Well, I'm, I'm a kind of conservation biologist. I got my PhD in Buenos Aires University a few years ago. Uh, and I basically, I'm a bird watcher. I started with the bird watching activity uh, when I was living in the middle of the Pampas. Uh, nobody was a bird watcher that, at that time there in, in the Pampas. Actually, I thought that I was the only bird watcher in the world because I, I, I didn't knew anybody that was in that right. activity. Afterwards, I realized that there were a lot of people around the world doing that. And that was a kind of a, a good discovery because I, I kind of joined at the very early stage uh, to a lot of people that were really passionate about birds, about conservation. So I, I actually, I become member of Aves Argentinas, the bird life partner in Argentinas, when I was, I don't know, 13 years old. And soon after, I already started to work in conservation projects, uh, like a volunteer, of course. And uh, so when I went to university, I was already involved in this conservation world. And I was kind of a, I was a privileged guy who had the chance to, to join very early on or find very early his passion. So I was kind of, I, I'm very happy about that. Yeah, fantastic. And so tell us, give us a bit of an overview of sort of nature and wildlife in Patagonia, because obviously it's a place that captures a lot of people's uh, imaginations. Well, I, w I, w I want to start to saying that actually I, I, I wasn't very fan of Patagonia when I was oh. a, a young scientist. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, I, I, I actually, I was really passionate about the tropical Andes. I was a fan of tropical Andes. Actually, I was a fan of this ornithologist the, called uh, John Fielso from, the, well, from Denmark. He, he did really fantastic studies about phylogeography and conservation and ecology of birds in the Andes. And he was kind of a terrific ornithologist. And I was, he, he, he actually is a really good artist. He has this bird of the high Andes book. And I was really into what he had done in the, in the past. Uh, and suddenly when I applied to a grant in the US, I was trying to, to go there to, to a PhD in the, in the Andes. I, 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 Kind of have the opportunity to go to to help on the first season in the hoodie group project uh, also as a technician like very simple and turned out that patagonia was much much nicer than i, I was expecting actually I I, I I i was in patagonia before and but by the first time i kind of went connected with this huge landscape this kind of 
fabulous landscape these sceneries like the glaciers and the, this i don't know if, if you heard about the fitzroy mountain which is an awesome spot in in southern patagonia and especially the habitat of the hood grief which is these highland plateaus where there is not a single human soul around just except some some kind of puesteros what we call the gauchos in the in the plateaus. so is it yeah, these guys who is they are only with the, their sheep in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of you feel like in the real wildlife. It, that was the first time I really feel I was in in wildlife. Nobody uh, have been in those places. No, no, there is nobody around. That's that's kind of a, a kind of impressive of Patagonia. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what uh, what's happened with the grebe, the journey that's been on then. You have well, the, the grebe, the grebe, as you may know, is a species that you know the grebes. You have this fabulous crested grebe in the UK, and they are very popular birds. Actually, Julian Huxley, one this famous ornithologist, the, the grandson of, of, of the famous Huxley, mm. the friend of Darwin, actually, he studied the, the crested grebe because it's this kind of charismatic species. Uh, but the hooded grebe was discovered just in 1974. Mm. which is kind of really recent for science, no? It's a kind of such a nice bird and what is coming in 74. And so it called the attention to a lot of people that started studying it and they thought it was really in danger, but then they realized that they live in such a kind of, a, yeah, wild habitat that actually John Fields, that this ornithologist I mentioned, said that probably there was no chance for the human to mess with it, its habitat. So it was secure because it was so remote, but that's not true. And the humans are much, much more capable of making mess in mm. this remote landscape. And now the grebe population is only 700 individuals, a little bit over 700 individuals with a lot of threats like global climate change, invasive species such as American mink, uh, the Cub Gull, which is a native species, but is spreading following human settlements mm. or the rainbow trout. Uh, so there are many things that are, that are happening in Patagonia that even though there is a remote place far away from civilization, the the threats are uh, kind of increasing and making more and more problems for the grebe and for the whole habitat, of course. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of, uh, lot of challenges there. Would you mind going to detail a little bit more about the mink and why there's such a problem? Well, uh, as we mentioned of, uh, before the, the, the podcast, that basically mink is an invasive species that have been uh, uh, released in many places in the world, including the UK. Like you, you mentioned the water bowl problem. Right. Well, actually, it's exactly the same situation. The grebe is suffering from many other threats, like changing in, in its habitat because of the rainbow trout or the global climate change. And what the mink does is to basically impact on these last colonies or these last individuals, having a very kind of dramatic impact because the mink predates on, over the reproductive adults, which are really important when you have a, like a critical species with very few individuals, long-lived animals, grebes can live over 20 years or more. We, we don't know exactly how much, how long they can live, but they, they are kind of a birds that can last for many years. So when you have these invasive species that they are, it's killing some, a big number for reproductive adults, it's creating like a 
very big disbalance on the population. And the problem with the mink is that one individual we found that killed over 33 adults in one night. So the, the impact of this each individual mink over the great population is is traumatic, yeah, as I, I said before. Yeah. yeah, no, completely. Okay, so where did you come in and tell us a little bit about your, your journey of rescuing the grebe from, uh, well, from extinction? Well, when I, I joined this first crew of, of, of the Hoodie Grebe project, before the, actually the Hoodie Grebe project start, uh, we thought that the grebe was doing bad, but we never kind of, we not even dreamed that it was doing that bad. We actually, we didn't know that the mink was uh, one of the problems. We 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 kind of had this, the idea that the trout was the biggest the biggest problem. We, 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 were, we were not sure. Uh, so my role in this, all this kind of movie for saying in one way is, uh, I was just a biologist that was in the right place in the right moment because I was aiming to go for a PhD. And suddenly we have this big question, what was going on with the hood grip? So basically my role was to start to research and try to figure out what was going on. And what we found in the very early uh, years of the hood grip project was that the, there were these kind of threats, like the mink especially. So basically my research had to focus more in solving the problems than understanding the problems, because we, we understand really quick which were the problems that they were affecting. So basically I have to gather a crew of uh, practitioners and try to, to solve this, these problems. And so it was at the beginning was really challenging years because we have to convince the conservation community that the grip was critically facing extinction in a, like very close. It was like, mm. if, we, if we didn't do anything that the extinction probably was already happened, uh, we don't know. That's well, right. but that was was a dramatic situation. So these first years were pretty challenging because we didn't have the funding, but we we we, we knew that was was going on. So I think that my role, that my most important role, was to convince people to join us in this kind of uh, uh, journey. Uh, and now we are a team of twenty four people working full time on the on the project. Uh, and I think that's kind of our biggest uh, kind of uh, success, you know, because now the grip population is having stabilized and now the project is growing and protecting not only the hood grip, but the whole ecosystem where the hood grip lives. So it's kind of, a, kind of, so far it's a successful history. Absolutely. So give us a few more details of, uh, I, th I think I'm right in saying that you introduced some artificial nests and then you had uh, the guardians, people that would essentially, uh, well, guard the nests 24 hours a day, pretty much something like that. Is that, is that more or less what happens? Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the most successful conservation strategies was to, we, we, we realized that we need as many chicks as we can for every single egg of the hoodie grip was important mm. because we, we 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 knew that the problem was reproductions that like the breeding success so what we created was this colony guardian program which was kind of a little bit of a crazy idea at the time but basically was to to get even more crazy people to 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 travel and to camp for i don't know three four months on the colonies of grips 
and live like and protect the grip 24/7 for the whole breeding season. And basically, what we accomplished with that, with these crazy people that actually I was part of the of the crew of crazy people at that time. Was. <laughs> uh, yeah, was the basically we we duplicate the success of the grip uh, com comparing with the natural unprotected colony. So that was really awesome. Uh, and basically, what we done, we we did for with that is that people that went there for as a colony guardian become so passionate that as the hooded grebe that they can they keep coming and, and keep protecting the grebe and they, we increase the number of colony guardians and we basically nowadays we have a, a crew of colony guardians that we are certain that if we have a colony we have the chances to protect it. So that was pretty cool. And so how does that work? I mean, is it literally the case of chasing a mink with a big stick if one comes near the nest, or actually, actually, it's a it's a pretty, it's a pretty boring show because ninety nine percent of the time nothing happens. You are just there sitting, looking at the colony, engaging with the birds, like creating like a special connection with the birds, something like yeah. that. But basically, it's just they they do censuses, they they collect data like scientific data, but they basically don't do anything special. But the problem is that they have to be extremely prepared when this 1% of the time something happened. They have to be prepared. And basically what can happen to a, a colony is that a gull arrive and you have to be there to chase the gull away because one gull, we, we have records that one gull can destroy a, a colony of 40 nests in less than 40 minutes. So takes less yes. than, less than a minute per nest to destroy the whole colony so yeah, basically they, they they cannot be they cannot be distracted because if they are distracted for an hour basically they can lose the whole colony that's kind of chance and with the mink is the same thing they, they are all the time patrolling the lakes trying to to be kind of detect the mink as soon as I, it's arrived to the lake uh, and then once the mink arrives they have to 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 catch it mostly with traps with this tomahawk uh, live traps uh, so they have to be really ready to to react to the, to react and once the mink is around they they cannot basically cannot sleep they have to turn and be all the time awake because the mink mm -hmm. mostly attack during the night so it's kind of a it's a very stressful situation for right. the, for the people not a sleep deprivation and and you uh, created artificial nests am i correct to say then put them in the middle of the lake Something like that. Yeah, yeah. The problem the last three years was that the, the, there was no natural uh, kind of habitat for the mink to reproduce. The mink used uh, the only plant, water plant that grows in those lakes, which is uh, is called water milfoil. And because probably of global climate change, the last three years that plant did not flower. So basically, the grip did, did not have the the the, mat, the materials to to build their nest the, that they are like floating platforms. So what we did was to create these artificial floating platforms. Uh, now we are in, in these days we are actually setting about uh, yeah I would say like forty artificial platforms in one special lake, which is always a really good lake for grip reproduction. And uh, with that, we are hoping to kind of uh, at least compensate this lack of, of material to build a nest and at least to have some chicks per season. 
fantastic. Okay, so your work got recognised by some quite uh, sort of high status uh, people. Do you want to tell us a little bit about when David Attenborough gave you a gave you a shout out, or not that's your hype work, but would you mind telling us about that that whole story and how that was for you? Well, yeah, well, actually it was a, a a bummer because the in actually usually. Uh, that's you have to go to to London and there is a ceremony and mm. get you get to know actually in person to David Attenborough, and this year because of the pandemic it was all uh, uh, through Zoom, yeah. uh, so it was kind of a, a disappointment. But actually, I have the I was lucky enough to already meet uh, David Attenborough in one of these uh, congress for a student in Cambridge some years ago. Amazing. So well. Uh, I have that part uh, already covered, but yeah. Now, was what was superb? Actually, it was a little bit. I was a little bit kind of. Um, I don't know how to say it in English, but uh, this the, the 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 prize that they gave me and the, all this recognition with David Attenborough, etc., was to me. But actually, this is kind of uh, the, our project. The the main. Uh, uh, kind of a force or the main strength of the, of our project is that there is a kind of a group of people really passionate and, and basically joining forces to 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 make it happen actually. So perhaps I I, I my only my only perhaps uh, merit is that I was one of the first one, but all these people that is now around is kind of actually is as important as myself. So. Uh, but we are really, all really happy, and we are actually absolutely kind of. Uh, um, I, I don't know how to say. It, Ecstatic. We, we yeah, because of the uh, this that more talking about the good grief and talking about the, our work is going to basically help us to make this to 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 know to everybody, and that's one of the things that really care. Fantastic. So we've covered the, the greed a little bit there. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about sort of the wider scope of what's happening in other parts of Patagonia, maybe some other species or, you know, effects of climate change or just give us a bit more of a flavour of what else is going on out there? Well, as I mentioned, one of the, the good things of the Hugri was that the, um, the, it, we, we managed actually also thanks to David Attenborough for, for, for sure, we managed to create the Hodegrid grief for as a symbol for conservation in Patagonia. And they they uh, that gives us the, the chance to start to, to do some research in, in other species. And what we start to, to, to find out is that many other species like the Austral Rail, the Torrent Duck, the Magellanic Plover, the Wolfson's Kacha, the, the Austral River Otter, all these species are suffering more or less the same problems that they could agree. Basically, cl global climate change is changing everything. Patagonia is getting much more dry than it used to be. It's much less snow every year, harder winds. So basically, all the wetlands are getting dry, all the lakes are getting dry. And as you may know, like we talk about the, the mink, when you have this kind of a population that they are suffering some stress uh, or, or reducing its habitat, when you have invasive species, the impact of those invasive species is even bigger. So American mink is not just affecting the hood grebe, it's affecting 
like I said, like the actual rate, probably uh, its population had reduced over 90% that it used to be. The, 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 the distribution of the actual rate reached to Santiago de Chile, and now we only have the, the actual rail in the southern tip of Patagonia in Argentina and Chile. So basically, the, 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 the distribution reduction of the actual rail is dramatic, but well, it's a less charismatic species. So having an umbrella species like the hodden grebe or like a flagship species is giving us the, the chance to understand what's going on in the whole environment. Uh, and can, that's kind of, I think, is one of the biggest also accomplishment of the of the Hood Group project to try to to engage more people in conservation <laughs> of other species. Brilliant. I was just about to come on to that. So, do you feel quite optimistic about the the younger generations and where they're taking things? Yeah, of course. So younger generations are the the kind of. Uh, uh, are bringing us a little bit of hope uh, on this kind of... Uh, if you work in conservation, you tend to hear so many bad things all the time that you start to become a little bit depressed. But then you start to realize that the people is uh, at least is slowly changing. Uh, I always mention that when I was a, a kind of a, my early age in university, it was really extremely rare to, to see any news about any animals in the newspaper, or, or hear any any radio show uh, with talking about uh, anything about wildlife, and nowadays it's every day you you can hear in the radio on, or of course in the internet everywhere, or you have the podcast, and I think that's kind of a symbol. It's not just that communication is much more available for everybody, but it's also that people is all, also more interesting on that. Uh, so I think that's. That, and that's because of the new generations, and the new generations are growing with a different perspective on, on, on everything. So as we are different from our fathers, uh, uh, probably, yeah, our sons are going to be much more open-minded for trying to help or protect biodiversity. So yeah, most of the people that nowadays is working with us are, are in the early 20s. So that's kind of a, makes you feel that we are in the, even though it's a rough path, is we are in a good path. Absolutely, good. Okay, so what would you like to see change um, over the next 10 years in Patagonia in terms of conservation or, or policy or maybe government intervention? Or... Well, Patagonia has many other kind of uh, desert-like habitats uh, had been really left apart and concealed like low importance of, for biodiversity because the biodiversity kind of uh, is low. But uh, so nowadays you can find like oil companies, mining companies, uh, big uh, hydroelectric dams. So basically what I'm hoping in the next 10 years is that the perception of the people about this kind of uh, not as impressive habitat like the rainforest uh, they are going to be taken into account and realize that they have, even though they are the deserts, they are kind of, they, they hold kind of this kind of species that are very important and very special for, for, for everybody because they are, they are there and they don't live any, anywhere else in the world. Brilliant. Okay, so would you say you're optimistic about the future? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, humans are a special, it's, it's an special animal, but... <laughs> Very weird to understand. I think nobody have a, uh, we we have a much deeper understanding on many other species rather than the humans. 
so I don't know what to predict with, with us, but I think we are, we are in a better path than we were 10, 15 years ago, for sure. Absolutely. And Kenny, is there anything else you'd like to share? Oh, I'm, I'm really glad that you are working and uh, doing this podcast because, as I mentioned, I think we, we need to spread the voice as much as we can. There's still a lot of people to, to get involved with conservation, with Patagonia, with the whole grid. So um, I'm really happy to join and, and try to, 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 to convince people. Even though I'm, not, I'm just a biologist, I have no training on, on, on share my experience, but I'm glad you are people like you that are doing this stuff. Thank you. And where can people find you and your work if they want to look you up? Well, we, we have a lot of social network like Instagram, uh, Facebook, and, and basically they can look for, for us in, in Aves Argentinas, uh, which is the partner of BirdLife, or go through BirdLife to all the partners and look for Aves Argentinas. And we have our own networks called Programa Patagonia, uh, which is the Patagonian program which kind of is focused only in the grip and in Patagonian species. So it's really nice. Uh, and then, or join me on, on my own uh, social network, like in Twitter. I'm very active in Twitter because it's much more fun to, to, to share news and to discuss stuff with people. Yeah, it's quite chaotic. Okay, Kenny, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your time. <laughs> no, thank you. It was a pleasure.